Welcome to State of the World. Today, we are thrilled to feature episode sponsor, Jeffrey Hoffman and the Hoffman Auto Group. In 1921, the Hoffman Auto Group was founded by Israel Hoffman with the acquisition of a Ford franchise in New Hartford, Connecticut. Celebrating 100 years in business this year, the Hoffman Auto Group is regarded as one of the most respected family-owned businesses in the state, comprising locations in four Connecticut towns, East Hartford, Connecticut, West Simsbury, Connecticut, Waterbury, Connecticut, and New London, Connecticut. The company is comprised of nine brands and 10 dealerships, boasting numerous awards from both the community and the auto industry, striving to provide the very best customer experience. The high-stakes summit between President Biden and President Putin comes as tensions are at their highest level in years. President Putin has warned the West not to cross what he called a red line with Russia, stating that it would trigger an asymmetrical, rapid and harsh response. Mr Putin's comments during his State of the Nation address came at a time of increased tensions with the West, and as supporters of the jailed opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, staged protests against Mr Putin's rule. Joe Biden is not meeting with Vladimir Putin despite our country's differences. He's meeting with him because of our country's differences. Russia and the United States have had a confrontational relationship for decades, but recent years have seen the relationship grow increasingly rocky. From meddling in elections to a transmitter in a gifted soccer ball, Putin is pushing at the limits of the American public and president. On Wednesday, June 16th, President Biden and President Putin will meet for the first time since the Biden administration took office. What's at stake for this historic summit? This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly, and on this episode, we're talking with Dr. Fiona Hill. She's one of the nation's most respected and trusted experts on U.S.-Russia relations. She's currently a senior fellow at Brookings and former deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council. Moderated by Council CEO, Megan Torrey. Dr. Hill, can you sort of describe how you see the, the bilateral relationship between Russia and the US? Well, unfortunately, we're in a state of confrontation and rather than just competition at this particular juncture. And it's also had a long tail behind it. Um, Biden is in a bind, one might say, because he's having to basically deal with a lot of unfinished business with Russia that goes back not just to Crimea, which you just mentioned, you know, in 2014, the annexation of Crimea, when he was vice president um, with um, President uh, Barack Obama. But also since then, all of the things that have happened, Russia's uh, intervention in Syria, that was also on their watch, of course. And then, um, you know, the, the biggest uh, shock of all um, in terms of what happening in the United States was the interference in this massive uh, effort on the Russians' part to have some kind of influence over the outcome of the 2016 election. And of course, you know, since then, we've also had assassinations and poisonings of dissidents and spies and uh, former spies, uh, attacks on our forces in Syria by Russian paramilitary uh, cover operatives. 
uh, you know, we could just go on and on and on a kind of a long litany of things that the Russians have done, hacking of uh, critical infrastructure, you know, continued attempts to mess about in the elections. And there's an awful lot of emphasis then uh, in, on the part of the people around Biden, Congress and elsewhere, the people who watch Russia about, well, how does Biden deal with all of this? He has to find a way of moving forward with this summit and these other meetings into trying to somehow stabilize the relationship. The Biden administration has talked about wanting to have a more stable and predictable relationship with Russia. And we can talk about whether that's at all possible, but there's so much baggage. There's a, you know, kind of a real overload here of the system. And there's also an awful lot of demand for Biden to take action to punish Russia for many of these transgressions of the past and the you know, not so recent past and, and continuing of the present. So the relationship is at a really particularly fraught juncture. I think what Biden is trying to do is to use diplomacy as a tool, to have a face-to-face -face meeting, to take the measure of somebody he's already taken the measure of many times. I mean, he referred back to that meeting in 2011 when Biden looked at Putin and said, look, people are looking for your soul. I'm looking there and I don't see one. You know, I think they got the measure of each other then. But this is the first time, obviously, Biden's been president in this period. I mean, Putin's been president now since 2020. And he's saying that he's going to be president out till 2036. Highly unlikely that President Biden will be president in 2036. So, you know, I, I suppose Putin feels pretty confident that, you know, he's been there, done that and will continue to do that. And he will be trying to take advantage the whole time of this. And so there's, you know, some jeopardy in this meeting. But it's also essential to be able to um, transmit messages and to put down markers about red lines in the relationship, rules of the road, rules of the game, and what you will tolerate and what you will not tolerate. So I personally think it's actually essential to have a meeting. Look, I mean, nobody's saying that President Biden shouldn't meet with President Xi of China, and the Chinese are committing all kinds of atrocities and have done all kinds of things that are inimical to our interests as well. You know, we need to use diplomacy as a tool. We just have to be very careful about you know, how this meeting is handled and what happens uh, subsequently. My um, view would be not to have a press conference. I mean, it's one thing for Biden to be able to relate the interactions with Putin afterwards to the press and you know, to the public, but we don't want to kind of expose ourselves to the kind of spectacle that we had you know, back in uh, the same sort of time frame you know, two, uh, almost three years ago now in 2018 in Helsinki, where you know, the summit between uh, Trump and Putin was completely disastrous because of a very ill-advised press conference. Absolutely. So Dr. Hill, you have said many times that sort of Russia perceives the United States as a threat. And that's a sort of essential way to, to, under, to understand the relationship. Can you expand on, on what you mean by that? Well, unfortunately for Putin and the people around him, they're still in that mindset that the United States remains the main adversary as it was during the Cold War. And although you know, we're 30 years out from that now, uh, as far as they are concerned, we maintain the capabilities and the capacity to hurt them. The conventional um, uh, military forces, we now have precision long-range um, missiles that are conventional, but that you know, can do incredible damage, for example, let alone the strategic um, uh, nuclear arsenal that we have in the intermediate and you know, tactical nuclear weapons. And, you know, as far as Putin and the people around him are concerned, they believe that the United States is in the business of regime change, of overthrowing governments. And, you know, the, you know part of the reason that they intervened in Syria was to stop the United States from getting rid of Assad. They're, they're busy popping up um, Lukashenko in uh, Belarus right now. They moved into uh, Venezuela in support of Maduro you know, a couple of years ago, believing that we were in the process of trying to push him from power. 
Putin has been convinced for some period of time that the United States is out to get him. And he's actually right that there are people about to get him. There are people certainly in our firmament and in Europe and elsewhere who prefer not to have Putin in power. Uh, the Obama administration, many European leaders made it very clear that they actually quite enjoyed having Dmitry Medvedev as a sort of an interim president in between you know, President Putin's multiple terms uh, back from 2007 to 2011, 2012. There's no um, surprise uh, on the part of Putin that you know he's not very popular in the United States and that Biden doesn't you know kind of uh, think particularly warmly or uh, uh, you know, particularly positively about him. But you know I think you know Biden's um, view is that he doesn't have to like Putin you know to to basically figure out how to manage this relationship, which is you know what he's looking for. Putin, however, I think you know we want to manage the confrontation with Russia and to try to put it on a different footing. The Russians' whole point is they want to manage confrontation. They don't want the friction in the relationship to disappear. Because although the United States is still seen to be as the main opponent and the main threat, the Russians, just like everybody else, is wondering about what's going to happen in a world where China is the dominant player and the dominant system. And the Russians have really been trying very hard to, to forge a strategic partnership with China. We've been helping that, frankly, because we've been actually pushing them together, Russia and China, in ways that you know, perhaps have been unnatural, but now that they've both embraced it. And Russia's trying to prove to China, as well as to everyone else, that they're still the tough kid on the block, that they have every right to be one of the top three, if not one of the top two, you know, countries, the superpower of the past, the great power, you know, seat still of the future. But they do that by sparring with the United States, by showing that they're tough enough to, you know, be head to head with the US. The last thing they want to be is to be left with China and be made perhaps pitted against China. So I think friction with the United States and managed confrontation with the United States is essential for Putin right now to show China and everybody else that they're still the big kid on the block, but also for domestic purposes, because he's telling you know the domestic population we're under threat, we're under siege from the United States. The United States wants to put Russia down. The United States wants to overthrow me. The United States wants to oppress you. And so we're constantly mobilizing against the United States. Otherwise, there's no excuse for him to put Alexei Navalny in jail, to clamp down on opposition, or to even say that he needs to be in power till 2036. Because if you know the world is a safe place, why does he have to be president indefinitely, you know, for example? Exactly. So I'm going to, uh, so on State of the World, we have what's called the five and it's a speed round. And I'm going to ask you uh, to sort of expand on what you just said just a little bit more. So if you were the Kremlin and you're preparing your five top priorities going into the summit next week, what would the five top priorities be? For the Kremlin? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, to show that you're still, um, you know, the, the major player and that you're an equal of the United States. Uh, the other priority is to actually be able to take that beyond this summit uh, so the uh, Russians are looking to start um, or to continue strategic stability talks that they've had with the US in the past uh, to be able to talk um, you know, about arms control. The third thing is they want to have some commitment to um, uh, really being able to engage and have talks on arms control on nuclear weapons and the future of nuclear weapons. What's going to happen uh, now that the United States has pulled out of INF? The fourth is, look, I think they want to take advantage of the moment and to continue continue to be able to emphasize that the United States is weak. So I do think that we have to look out for some mischief. They'll want to kind of come out of there, being able to show that they've maybe to get one over, pulled a fast one on the United States. They did that very effectively at Helsinki, you know, kind of that summit with uh, Trump. And, um, you know, fifth, 
I do think that they want to get some kind of measure of, you know, Biden and the team around him, you know, to see what they can leverage and to see, you know, kind of how they can deal with them in the future. So getting the measure of the people that they're engaging with, those would be my five. I'm, I'm sure that if I thought about it a bit more, I could come up with some more as well. But anyway, that's a quick five. Great. Thank you so much. If you were still at the NSC, you and your staff would have been the ones preparing the, the, the brief for, for President Biden. So what would be in that brief? Would you think that you would see uh, Putin trying to create some mischief or, or some something uh, he would do in the in the lead up? And he points out that even today, um, Alexei Navalny's uh, political movement was um, deemed by a Russian court to be, um, you know, uh, extremist. So uh, exactly. I, I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that you're going to expect them to see. I mean, so look, if you look back to Helsinki, the in the days before Helsinki, the United States indicted several uh, officers from the GRU, the um, Russian military intelligence, for the um, operation to interfere in our elections. What did Putin do at Helsinki? He suggested that um, the United States and Russia could avail themselves of a mutual assistance, um, legal assistance treaty. And then, you know, the United States would, of course, be welcome under that treaty to interrogate those officers. But of course, there was a twist. He said it's mutual, and then we would also like to be able to interrogate or question uh, uh, some Americans. And, you know, that turns out to be Americans who were involved in the passing of the Magnitsky Act in Congress that put sanctions uh, for on uh, Russians for human rights violations, named after Sergei Magnitsky, uh, the lawyer for Bill Browder, um, who had then... Uh, you know, lost all of their assets in a hostile uh, takeover and who then died in jail. And so this caused outrage. And that became, you know, along with all kinds of other things at the press conference and it, all that everybody was talking about. So, you know, the, the Russians managed to throw everyone uh, on the back foot and to get Americans all arguing and fighting with each other and forgetting, you know, what we'd all been about, which was trying to hold Russians to account for interfering in our elections. So, you know, we are no doubt going to raise the issue of Navalny, not just the, uh, um, you know, basically the disassembling, the outlawing of his organization, but the fact that Navalny himself is being imprisoned on trumped up charges. He just celebrated his 45th birthday in jail and all these other, you know, abuses of um, political uh, prisoners. There are also two American citizens in jail, Paul Whelan and Trevor Reed, two former Marines, who the Russians have taken hostage essentially, and they want to trade for Victor Boot, you know, the famous or infamous arms dealer. They made that crystal clear to us. You know, so we're gonna have to also press the case of our own American citizens. What are they gonna do? Putin's already made it clear, just like the ambassador is surmising. They're gonna raise the fact that we are somehow trampling over the rights of those who were detained after the events of January 6th and the storming of the Capitol, saying that these were just petitioners who were wanting to bring, you know, their particular, you know, um, political grievances to the attention of congressmen. I mean, they're just totally and utterly playing with our politics deliberately. So that would be, you know, one thing that we have to be very cautious. And we have to be cautious, not just our president, the, um, who is going to meet with Putin to look out for this, but also our press, don't rise to the bit. And that relates me to a second caution, don't have a press conference. I mean, I don't know whether they decided to do this, but why give Putin a platform to try to do things like this, like we did in the past? We didn't used to have press conferences in the Soviet period. We don't have to have a press conference. All that is, is a, you know, kind of a platform for mischief. We can, you know, basically relate what, you know, what we got out of this and talk to our press on the way back. I mean, the other thing is, you know, kind of really going through what um, Putin's objectives would be. 
he wants to be seen as an equal to the United States, but he's not going to back off trying to hurt us whenever he can. He wants to sit at the table and kick us under the table at the same time. And Putin has other priorities other than the United States, domestic priorities, just as we do, but his is, you know, keeping his opposition in check. He also wants to be seen to be a major player because, you know, I've already mentioned they're worried about China down the line. He wants to be seen to be treated with respect, but he also wants to disrespect us in some way, getting back to the mischief. So, you know, we're going to have to tread very carefully with this. But I do think that we want to set, and this is what, you know, I hope that um, President Biden will be able to do, uh, set down some rules of the game, some red lines to basically say, look, these things are not permissible. And if you do something on these fronts and cyber, attacking our critical infrastructure, meddling in our politics, you know, a whole list here, we will take action. You may not know, you know, it won't it be public, but you will know um, after the fact we've taken action, we'll be sending you a very strong message. I mean, we need to launch a, an offensive defense. We just shouldn't be talking about it all the time. But President Biden should be making it clear that you know certain things will be impermissible. But at the same time, we want to you know, basically have degrees of predictability of this relationship to manage this confrontation. And in that regard, we'd like to set up a set of predictable meetings so that people are not going into a mass hysteria every time a US president meets with a Russian president, just like they're not when you know, we meet with the Chinese who are doing some pretty egregious things as well. But meetings to talk about strategic stability and arms control between the professionals uh, our meetings between the Secretary of State, Defence, uh, Chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, including our Intel Chiefs, because the Russians are really trying to poke and prod us all the time on the Intel side, so that those messages can be passed as well. We mustn't look as diplomacy as, a, a, as an appeasement mechanism or as a gift. Diplomacy is a tool. So these meetings, these are episodic events. They're ways of taking the temperature of the relationship, passing on messages, but also regularizing and trying to stabilize the relationship and manage a very difficult confrontational relationship. All very complicated. So I wanted to get your assessment about the situation in Belarus. On one hand, Putin doesn't want to appear to embrace Lukashenko too warmly, but on the other hand, um, uh, you know, Putin profoundly fears Lukashenko being overthrown by populist forces and the pressure that that would put on him. So how do, what, how do you think the U.S. should handle the situation in Belarus? Well, this is a very difficult one. I mean, as you said, I mean, all of these things are pretty complicated. Um, we have to be aware that, you know, what Putin is going to try to do is keep Lukashenko in place, but potentially uh, also try to kind of find a way of having a replacement lined up for Lukashenko that's someone, you know, to Russia's needs or Russia's um, suiting. Because Belarus is part of um, a kind of symbolic union state with Russia. It's also, more importantly, um, part of... Russia's defensive um, structures. So Belarus is the land bridge to Kaliningrad, the next slave of Russia, sandwiched between Poland and the Baltic states. And you know you see an awful lot of exercises that Russia conducts on Belarusian territory. Um, they're not, not just confined to Russia's um, western uh, regions. And just as you know, this question is suggesting, Martha, uh, it's basically Russia sees an incredibly bad precedent in Lukashenko being ousted by grassroots movement, opposition movement, you know, um, you know, probably have lots of evidence that he wasn't fairly elected because Lukashenko has been in power for a mere 27 years. And Putin's suggesting he wants to be in power for 36. So if Lukashenko has worn out his welcome after 27 years and is going to be removed by the street and by protests, this is a very bad precedent for Putin. And so, you know, for the United States and how do we handle this, it's very carefully. 
first of all, we don't want to sort of sell Belarus down the river and its sovereignty. We want to kind of figure out a way of making it clear that Belarus is still, Belarus is still a sovereign power. But, you know, we also can't let uh, Lukashenko get away with what he's done recently, like, you know, basically diverting and uh, bringing down Ryan aircraft uh, from uh, flying from one European capital to another so that they can uh, basically arrest and take off a Belarusian dissident. And we have to make sure that that is seen to be not permissible. So we have to work very closely with our European allies on this to kind of make sure that we're sending very strong messages. But we're also going to have to play it very cautiously because, you know, the Russians have also now um, shown how very clearly they have a deep vested interest in Belarus. I think the only way we can approach Belarus is to do it together with our allies, NATO allies, European Union allies as well, and it's particularly with the Baltic states and Poland and the other neighbours of Belarus. And that includes Ukraine too, because Belarus is a great threat to Ukraine and Ukraine's uh, sovereignty. We've already seen what Russia has done and continues to do with Ukraine. Do you see uh, Russia becoming the next great cyber superpower? And it seems as if space is the one the one frontier where we could still sort of work together on. Although yesterday, the Russian space chief said, if you don't get rid of the sanctions, we're building our own, our, our own, inter, you know, our own space station. Um, so what do you think the future is for these two domains, cyber and space? Well, in terms of space, Russia was always, you know, a great space power. And I think Russia is a little discomforted now that China is getting in the act. But look, and we've got Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos in on the act on space as well. I mean, we have now a whole new domain of private sector uh, space exploration. And that the Russia, Russia doesn't have that. And right now, China doesn't have that either. So I think, you know, space is getting blown open. Men or private men are going where they didn't go before. I mean, you know, this is like Jeff Bezos and his brother about to launch themselves off. I mean, it's totally fascinating sets of developments. So I'm sure the Russians are watching that and also thinking, hmm, hang on, this is getting a bit more complicated. But it's very clear that this used to be an area of great cooperation. Um, and, you know, the, the Russians are making it clear that they're willing to cooperate with the Chinese, but they must be very concerned because the Chinese have also got a Mars rover. The Chinese have been to the dark side of the moon. And, you know, Russia, you know, does Russia really have the wherewithal to build its own space station without China, honestly, uh, contributing? And, you know, kind of while we've got private sector efforts here, too. So I think, you know, space is becoming complicated, but it's very clear that Russia still wants to play there. And it's not just, you know, space exploration, but it's also, frankly, satellites, um, space-based missiles. You know, that's where the private sector isn't going to come in. But, you know, Russia is still making it very clear that they see that as a realm where, you know, they want to... Uh, be taken seriously. Cyber, they're already a cyber superpower. And in fact, we're seeing them acting out to get our attention because under the previous administration, President Trump was also saying, oh, it's China and North Korea or Iran um, that's, you know, um, hacking or making problems. And Russia wants us to know, no, it's them. And that they can do many things. They can hack our emails, you know, they can be everywhere at once. They could be in here with us right now. They could be in our command and control systems. They could be breaking down our pipelines and you know holding things for ransomware for criminals for hire. They want us to take uh, them seriously. They want cyber to be part of the discussion. They want to be a cyber superpower, and in many respects, they already are. You wrote a book about Putin, and you're uniquely positioned to have met with him several times. Um, so, if we're looking at the future and um, in, at a day when Putin won't be at the helm of Russia, what does Russia look like? Well, it's a really great question, and. You know, I mean, obviously, well, Putin, um, by giving himself till 2036, wants to be the person who says what Russia looks like. 
which is, you know, kind of someone who's his handpicked successor, you know, doing something like more of the same. I mean, right now, you know, the people around Putin have a vested interest in keeping him in place. But, you know, we all have our own life cycle. Right? I mean, you know, we can't all live forever. We can kind of push the clock out as long as possible. And Putin's been making, you know, a lot of hay out of Biden's age. But, you know, he should be careful because by 2036, he'll be 84. Um, you know, so he's already saying that he's going to be already in office when he's 78, like uh, President Biden is. Uh, you know, basically, you know, what are the alternatives? The alternative is someone from Putin's um, inner circle entourage, a younger version of him, you know, kind of uh, carrying things forward. Or there's Alexei Navalny in the opposition. And what's interesting is Navalny, I mean, of course, he's been in jail and we don't know, you know, how this is going to play out. You know, thank goodness he didn't, you know, die yet um, in prison. But I mean, you know, clearly Putin and those guys have made it very clear to the hit squads that they wanted to take him out and they'd be very happy to see him die. Navalny isn't calling for a Russian revolution or a complete overturning of the system. He's talking about removing the kleptocratic corrupt clique around Putin. And, you know, perhaps, you know, having Russia return to something of more of what it was at the very beginning of when Putin started out, putting, you know, more economic reforms and others in place and trying to sort of strengthen the state and the economy in a more, you know, a less corrupt, um, less thieving and, you know, conniving way. If we get another Putin for somebody coming from the security services, I mean, sadly, we'll see more of the same. But look, we've seen over in every symbol system that leadership matters and the style and the approach of the person at the top. You know, I mean, think about all of our previous presidents and how different they've been, even though there's been a lot of continuity in policy and continuity in you know the, the way that the United States does things. Type of person, the style of the person, that person's background does count for something. So, you know, it really depends on who actually replaces Putin. We saw, you know, Gorbachev really make some major changes. I mean, he actually lost a country. Putin doesn't want to be the person who does that. You know, we see in Venezuela, Maduro not being that different, in fact, being much worse than Chavez. But, you know, in other places, we've often had surprises about, you know, the, the leader that comes forward. So there is that element of the person and the personality that has to be factored in. So I can't say, you know, how Russia exactly looks. Well, it'll be exciting to, to see and to watch. And so Dr. Hill, we thank you so much. No, thanks so much. That was senior fellow at Brookings, Dr. Fiona Hill. Be sure to check out her upcoming book, There Is Nothing For You Here, released in October of 2021. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more and to join us for future live events, follow the World Affairs Council of Connecticut on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC or visit our website at ctwac.org. Today's episode was moderated by CEO Megan Torrey, produced by me, Amanda Jolly, with support from Caroline Schaefer, edited and engineered by Khalil Rahman. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time.